A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, a production of iHeartRadio. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, I know I brought these glue bottles into the studio here, and Mm -hmm. that we have put, what do you think, maybe we're on our fifth round of spreading it on our hands and peeling (laughs) it off just because it's It's too fun. fun. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so fun. But there's actually a reason that I do this. I do this in in, in classrooms now because I'm, I'm here to prove a point, I actually need you to know that the glue that kids use in schools, it's it's not really glue at all. What do you mean by that? It's a misnomer. And when I say misnomer to the kids, they looked at me puzzled, but they need to know what the word misnomer means as well. But true (laughs) glue is derived from natural materials like animal byproducts, plant resins. And since school glue, like Elmer's, is actually made from synthetic materials, that technically makes it an adhesive. This is this is a very important point, Mango. <laughs> I love the idea of you just like stomping around second grade classrooms yelling, stop putting that adhesive in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know how much I travel these days, and so uh-huh. I try to make it a point by stopping by at least <laughs> two or three classrooms to make this point. But, sure. I mean, nearly every example prior to 20th century was all natural, like tree sap, beeswax, egg whites, animal blood even. Oh. In fact, the very first commercial glue company in the UK made their glue from fish byproducts, from sturgeons to be specific. Can you imagine what this Uh, smelled like? So I I actually remember uh, Salvador Dali made this homemade cologne for his wife, and it was out of like glue and fish parts. (laughs) But, you know, if he'd used that UK glue instead, like he could have saved himself. It's kind of like a glue life hack. Yeah, it totally is. And it would have felt so good to like peel it off your (laughs) neck. And I think I'm going to go another round here. But it wasn't just in the UK. Like fish glue was the norm in the US too. And at least until Elmer's glue all hit the market in the late 1940s. Now at that time, the Elmer's brand also used natural ingredients in the glue, but the kind it used were far less smelly than the sturgeon. Mm -hmm. So Elmer's glue all was originally produced by the Borden company, which, you know, is in the dairy business. And one of the main ingredients in the early form of the glue was casein, which you probably know as this protein found in dairy milk. And 
something the Borden company obviously had a lot of. That's pretty interesting. So are there any advantages to using casein over something like fish parts? Well, definitely the improved smell, sure. not surprisingly, <laughs> but casein glue also spread more easily. It dried clear, much easier to wash out. So if you think about, you know, kids using it, that was really important. But mm-hmm. despite all of these improvements, for some reason, their packaging left much to be desired. Like the glue was originally sold in this glass bottle, which, you know, was getting broken all the time with kids handling. And sure. it came with this separate wooden applicator that was attached to the side of the bottle was just a rubber band, and so it was frequently going missing. And so when school kids across the country started investing in this stuff, that's when Borden decided to wise up, and they now, you know, adopted this, this what we think of as this very classic white plastic bottle and has the, the orange dispenser tip on the top. So you know me, and you know I love glue knowledge, but uh, what is it that made you want to talk about glue today? Yeah, you really are some kind of an expert on this, but... <laughs> I wanted to talk about school back in September, but uh, as everybody knows, we've all been a a bit busy around here. But since our kids are firmly back in school, no vacation in sight, I thought it'd be fun to explore some of the weird origin stories behind school supplies and a few other things you might find in the classroom. So it's time to bust out your protractor, lock in that retainer, because class is back in session. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. On the other side of that soundproof glass, jotting down some notes in his Lisa Frank notebook. I'm so jealous of this I notebook know. he's got. It's our <laughs> friend and producer, Lowell Berlante. Check it out, Mega. Like it's, it's just this smiling panda riding on top of a smiling dolphin, and they're both eating these rainbow-colored ice cream cones, which... Also seems to somehow be smiling. I mean, Lowell finds the best stuff. It's incredible. And now I'm smiling. But, you know, I am glad that you kicked this off talking about glue because it makes it less weird that now I want to talk about backpacks. So these days, the first backpack that most people own is a school backpack, but that hasn't always been the case. So prior to the mid-20th century, most American students either carried their books to class by hand or else they wrapped a leather belt or cloth strap around the books and then kind of slung that over their shoulder. And a few students did use small briefcase-style satchels to carry their stuff to class. But for the most part, students really went bagless and and stuck with these trusty book straps instead. It's so weird to think about a world without backpacks, like especially since you're saying it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, no one really thought about wearing a bag on your back before the 20th century. I don't really understand that. So, I mean, rucksacks were, I guess, a thing before that. And they were basically the drawstring bags that you sling over your shoulder. But... These zippered bags with dual straps, like that didn't come along until 1938. And that was the year when a mountaineer named Jerry Cunningham invented the first ever zippered backpack out of canvas cloth. And mostly he did this because he didn't like the way traditional rucksacks slid around on his back when he was climbing. So Jerry's design was a big hit with hikers and campers and and people like that, real outdoorsmen. But actually it would take another 30 years before his invention would finally make its way off the trail and into the classroom. Again, I mean, it's hard to believe it would take this long to realize that there was a market for these beyond just mountaineers. Mm -hmm. So was it Jerry's idea to bring it into the classroom as well? No, not exactly. I mean, he did keep playing with his backpack. Uh, He made the first nylon backpack in 1967. 
And his designs were mostly for outdoor living, but it's actually that company Jansport. Did you have a Jansport growing up? Oh, totally. Yeah, like, so, multiple so, Jansport. Despite <laughs> despite the like lifetime guarantee, I think I probably had three different Jansport. I know we had between Jansport and Ella Bean, I had so many backpacks, and they yeah. all had like life lifetime guarantees, and I went through all of them. So he designed this uh, teardrop design, and Jansport tweaked it a little, and they used it to win over students, but. That even makes it sound like a little more intentional than it was. So the University of Washington had this small sports shop inside their campus bookstore because so many kids in the area were into climbing and hiking and whatever. And so in 1969, the shop began stocking Jansport's new lightweight nylon backpack, mainly as used as like a day pack for these hikes. And when students realized the bags were perfect for keeping books and supplies in it, it really took off. It's funny because a, a pretty similar thing happened with lunch boxes, which was another surprisingly recent addition to the school supply canon. Which is, I guess people didn't want their sandwiches wet for lunch. No, I don't. I don't know if you <laughs> want your sandwiches wet. That is so nasty. <laughs> Kids were mostly just improvising, you know, through the, the mid 20th century or so. They'd use an old cookie tin or a tobacco tin they had lying around somewhere. And so it wasn't until the late 19th century that dedicated lunch pails finally arrived on the scene. I always think that word lunch pails is so funny, like the idea of carrying around a bucket full of food. I mean, they kind of were. I mean, the original lunch pails were these small metal buckets, except they did come with lids. And later versions took on more of a like a toolbox or bread basket shape. And they feature these clasps so you could keep the lids shut when you carry them around, which is the kind of lunchbox men took to work in the early 20th century. You can kind of visualize those, sure. those old images we've seen. And pretty soon their children followed suit at school. So when did these bright colors and the cartoon characters, like when did all that stuff get onto the lunchboxes? That, that actually happened pretty early. Like the first one aimed specifically at kids came in 1935 when the Aladdin company put a picture of Mickey Mouse on the front. But with the Depression, it didn't quite take off at that time. Yeah, I, I'm guessing funds for that sort of thing were a little limited. And, uh, you know, food's at a premium, not, you know, not the things you're carrying it around in. Yeah, no, that's true. But, you know, the Aladdin company kept their idea for this novelty lunchbox in their back pocket. And when TV started to take off, this was in the early 1950s, the company got another turn at this. And so they released the metal lunchbox and thermos that featured a crudely drawn picture of Hopalong Cassidy. While that might sound pretty dull today, the Hopalong lunchbox was actually a massive hit. They sold 600,000 of these things in a single wow. year. And that success was enough for another screen cowboy to take notice. This was, of course, Roy Rogers. So he approached Aladdin about making a lunchbox of his own, but the company actually turned him away because they didn't think a second cowboy lunchbox would sell. Like, it's just that's too, it's too much cowboy. Yeah, you don't want two cowboys. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm guessing they were wrong about that, though, right? <laughs> they were very wrong about this. Because remember, Westerns were a big deal in 50s entertainment on the same scale as, like, the superhero movies today, and there was absolutely room on the shelf for two cowboy lunchboxes, and Roy Rogers knew this. <laughs> so to that end, Rogers partnered with a different company. It was American Thermos, and then together they released a lunchbox that was so popular it wound up selling 2.5 million units in 1953. Whoa. And not only did Roy Rogers, you know, this lunchbox sell through the roof, it also set a new benchmark for lunchbox design. It had this full-color illustration that covered the entire box and thermos. And so from there, lunchboxes really took off. Companies started churning out countless designs with TV, movie, comic book characters. 
The biggest hit was this Disney lunchbox painted to resemble a school bus that was carrying Mickey and the other Disney characters along like Pinocchio and Dumbo. And so over 9 million of those school lunchboxes were sold, making it the most popular lunchbox ever made. That's pretty incredible. So were lunchboxes still mostly metal at that point or had they already switched over to plastic? No, these were all still metal. And and when all was said and done, roughly 120 million metal lunchboxes were sold between 1950 and 1970. Uh, the party kind of ended in 1972, though, when the state of Florida banned metal lunchboxes from schools. They were you know, worried that kids were using these heavy boxes as weapons, which mm. led to the plastic boxes that we've seen in, in more recent years and the eventual declining sales of, of lunchboxes in general. So we've covered two of the most quintessential school supplies, I feel like, backpacks and lunchboxes. But here's another thing I hadn't thought about in a while, and that's the humble plastic recorder, which is still used <laughs> in music classes today. <laughs> you know, I, I have always wondered, like, how it was decided that every kid in America should learn how to play the recorder. Uh -huh. Like, I've always just assumed someone on the school board was in cahoots with the manufacturer, and that's how it somehow took off. Yeah, so I, I was actually curious about that, too. And uh, it turns out that it's largely thanks to the influence of this famous German composer whose music theory became the basis for a lot of the school music programs we see today. His name was Karl Orff, and while his name might not ring a bell, you've definitely heard his most famous work in at least one movie trailer. It's called Carmina Burana, and it sounds like this. Yeah, that definitely rings a bell. I mean, it's kind of the go-to hook for every epic movie since mm -hmm. the 1990s. Exactly. But anyway, so Orff's approach to teaching music stressed the importance of rhythm and creative thinking rather than just memorizing musical notations. And he thought the best way for a kid to learn music was by teaching him to play a simple, accessible instrument that kind of mimicked their own vocal range. And the soprano recorder perfectly fit that bill because, you know, at its core, the recorder is practically just a whistle. And unlike more complicated instruments, there are no strings to strum, you don't have to purse your lips in any strange way, you just kind of blow and out comes this screechy high-pitched tone. At least that's what I hear from my kids. But if you cover this hole or that hole with your fingers, you can actually change the notes you play. But the recorder's classroom dominance wasn't cemented until the 1960s, and that's when advances in manufacturing finally allowed the instruments to be mass-produced in plastic. The plastic recorders were especially attractive to educators because they were cheap enough that you could buy them in bulk, but still durable enough that, you know, they'd last, and they had a pretty good sound. I do have to say, I mean, you're being pretty cavalier about potentially alienating all those professional recorder players that might be in our audience. <laughs> I, I think you should be a little bit more careful. I think you're right, actually. And Gabe, who did this research, warned me that recorders used to be considered a pretty serious instrument. According to experts, the recorder's heyday was probably during the Baroque era, when composers like Bach and Vivaldi would actually crank out pieces that showcased recorders in all different sizes. And the recorder kind of got offstaged when the flute came into Europe and Asia and gradually stole the show. But adult musicians do still compose for and play the recorder today. According to Susan Burns, who's the administrative director of the American Recorder Society, quote, the recorder is a professional instrument in its own right. Everyone says, oh, it's so easy to play, but it takes a lifetime to master. <laughs> you know, Tony, I don't know if you've ever seen this, this clip that went viral of you hear the song turned down for what being played. And then right after they say that, 
it pans to this group of elementary school students and they start playing the like chorus or whatever on their recorders. It was, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it was pretty great. I know we've got so much more, so let's take a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the strange stories behind school supplies. All right, Mango, so as you know, there's a question every parent has to ask sooner or later, and that is, how can I keep my kid from freaking out about their first day of school? Mm -hmm. Like, it's 
a scary amount of change for a child to deal with, and there's no universal answer for how to combat that fear, but the Germans and Austrians have what's probably the closest thing, I think. And what is that? Well, basically, you distract them with a giant cone full of presents. I mean, it seems so (laughs) obvious in hindsight, but this is a real thing in Germany and Austria. So each year since the early 1800s, the latest crop of first graders are gifted with what's called a Schultata, which is to help celebrate their very first day of school. The name translates as school bag, but it's more like this giant cone-shaped Christmas stocking. So parents will fashion it out of paper, and it's sometimes as big as two or three feet tall, and then they fill it with like candy and toys and all these other treats to help make (laughs) the first day of school more special. I actually uh, just looked this up. It's crazy. These cones are like as big as the kids. It's insane. Yeah, it really is. So all the first year students just lug these giant cones around like all day? Well, not anymore. No, I mean, nowadays, most kids get their schultatas at at home and, and leave it there. But back in the early days of the tradition, kids actually had to rush to the schoolyard and pick their own from this tree that was set to grow them only when it was time for the school year to start. <laughs> it's a nice that, idea. That's amazing. I can imagine kids just like waiting like at the gates yeah. and then running in and getting these, plucking these cones from trees. It is kind of funny that you brought up cones because I actually have the goods on a different sort of cone that was supposed to I guess, bring up the opposite reaction, and that's the dunce cap. So during the Victorian era, this goofy cone-shaped hat became a symbolic form of discipline in European and American schools alike. And if a student acted up in class or didn't know the answer to a question, they'd have to go sit in the corner. And I'm sure you've seen cartoons of like Dennis the Menace or whatever, where he's wearing Mm -hmm. a dunce cap sitting in the corner. But the hope was all this embarrassment would curtail future misbehavior. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like a little public shaming to keep the kids in line, you know? (laughs) Well, it must have been pretty traumatizing for the kids, but the practice actually continued in the U.S. and Europe well into the 20th century, and dunce caps were pretty common all the way up until the 1950s. Oh, I do think of it as like a much older image. I didn't realize they lasted that long. Yeah, so here's the wildest part, and something I hadn't heard before this week, but We think about the dunce cap as something that signifies like a lack of intelligence. And it actually began as a symbol of a really accomplished scholar born sometime in the 13th century. His name was John Duns Scotus, and he was a Franciscan priest and a linguist. He studied theology and philosophy at Oxford and taught classes at the University of Paris. And he even had a group of students and others that kind of followed his teachings and and lived near him, and they called themselves duncemen. So Hmm. Atlas Obscura has an article about it, and it says, quote, Scotus was a Renaissance man centuries before the Renaissance even took place. But all of that said, it should be known that Scotus liked to wear a big pointy wizard hat whenever he went out in public. So (laughs) while he was this incredibly smart guy, his sense of fashion might be a little lacking or a little too forward, you know, depending on how how you look at it. But the cool thing is, and no one is really sure whether Scotus was inspired by depictions of wizards that he'd seen or whether it was his own cap that inspired the wizard's look that, that we think of now. I think in either case, it sounds like the takeaway here is that wise people wear very pointy hats. <laughs> I think that's the only thing I could take from it. Always. But, you know, Scotus even went a step further. He actually believed that the conical shape of his hat kind of functioned as this metaphysical reverse funnel with knowledge collecting at the pointy end and then flowing down around his brain. And and so as silly as it sounds, <laughs> the idea caught on with academics of the day and, and the cone-shaped cap became the symbol of both dunceman and of high intelligence in general. 
It's sort of bizarre. So like what happened? Like what changed the hats from a mark of pride to this symbol of, of shame, I guess? <laughs> Funnily enough, it's actually the Renaissance that changed it. So by the mid-16th century, popular theology and philosophy had moved away from Scotus and his teachings. And that lack of popular favor made the remaining dunsmen look silly and kind of outdated. Plus, their pointy hats didn't help. So over time, the dunsman and the dunce cap kind of became the symbol of foolishness and stupidity. It's such a strange legacy. On the bright side, though, historians have kind of vindicated Scotus over the years, and he's now held up as one of the finest thinkers of the Middle Ages, and Pope John Paul II even beatified him back in 1993 for his work as a religious scholar. So who knows, maybe we can turn things around for this famous cap, too. Anyway, we've got more to come, but first, a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So, Will, you've probably heard by now that sitting is the new smoking when it comes to health concerns. And that's why so many offices these days are switching to standing desks for their workers. But, you know, despite all the studies touting the health benefits of standing over sitting, it's unusual to find standing desks in elementary schools. Which, I mean, it's a good point because it is kind of weird when you think about it. I mean, you assume all the benefits of standing desk apply just as well to students as they would to adult office workers. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. So th- there was this uh, study that came out last year, and it found that third graders who used a standing desk at school were more focused in the classroom and more huh. active overall compared to kids of the same age who used traditional sit-down desks. And another study came up with the same results for second through fourth graders, setting a 12% increase in engagement from students who had the option of standing in class. I mean, it does sound like things might change in the not-too-distant future, and maybe we'll see standing desks become more of the norm in these classrooms. Yeah, so a handful of elementary schools across the country have already started adding standing desks to their classrooms, and I'm guessing more and more schools will jump on the trend as they become more affordable. But... In the meantime, one elementary school teacher in California, uh, Lynn Akers, has already made the switch to standing desks, and she explained the benefits this way. Quote, children naturally learn through movement. If you restrict them to sitting, they interrupt you more and may be asked to go to the bathroom a lot. They need to get their energy out. Which makes sense. But, you know, on the other hand, restricting kids to standing all day long could also lead to just as many problems. I mean, what if they get tired? Yeah, so schools are actually using a mix of standing and sitting desks, which lets the kids choose the option what works best for them. And even at schools where there are only standing desks, they tend to provide kids with these tall chairs or stools so that just in case they're tired, they can rest their legs. It's definitely a smart move. And, you know, since you mentioned how kids need an outlet for their energy, I do want to touch on something that's kind of become really a controversial topic. Are you talking about recess? I'm definitely talking about recess. You know we have to talk about recess, but <laughs> instead of talking about how some schools have tried to abolish recess, which maybe was where you were thinking, mm-hmm. I actually wanted to look at how we can make recess an even more effective form of exercise than it already is. So according to researchers in Denmark, the perfect place to start is with our school's playgrounds. In 2015, Danish researchers conducted a study where they had hundreds of elementary students wear accelerometers and these GPS trackers during their school year so that their activity levels at recess could actually be monitored. But here's the thing. The kids didn't all attend the same school or have recess on the same playground, and this variance allowed the researchers to see which types of schoolyard are more or less conducive to exercise. And so based on the data from these accelerometers, the children in the study were significantly more active when playing on grassy areas and at sites featuring playground equipment. And on the other end of the spectrum, concrete lots were the worst of the bunch. So they elicited the least energy expenditure of all the environments studied. Mm -hmm. So the hope is that with this kind of insight on what works best, developers can make better decisions and create playgrounds and schoolyards where, you know, it's easier and, and more fun for kids to choose to be active on their own. Which is interesting. So what kinds of stuff are we talking about, though? Like, because I'm guessing it's something beyond your typical slides and monkey bars. 
Yeah, that's right. So the, the, the researchers behind this study helped a few different schools renovate their playgrounds. And the main focus was to widen the variety of activities on offer. So in addition to the standard playground fair like swing sets, they added these areas specifically designed for dancing and climbing and skating. And they even dedicated this trampoline area. And I mean, really, who, who wouldn't want to spend at least an hour a day in a place like that? All those <laughs> options. I know, it does sound pretty fun. And in the end, isn't that the only school supply that a kid really needs? Fun? Pens, pencils, notebooks, rulers. <laughs> yeah, there, there's probably a few other things. Yeah, spoken like a true grown-up. So uh, oh. why don't we keep the fun going with a fact off? So here's a quick one on crayons. According to a Yale University study, Crayola crayons are one of the most recognizable scents for adults, ranking at number 18 of all the scents they tried. And it beat out, believe this or not, cheese and bleach. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's impressive. (laughs) All right, well, speaking of names for crayons, did you know that Crayola uses multiple names to refer to the same colors? So the practice started early with the company using 54 names to refer to just 38 separate colors by the end of 1903. And things only ballooned from there. So you fast forward to 2015 and Crayola had assigned 759 names to just 331 colors. Hmm. Now, to be clear though, this doesn't mean the company is stuffing duplicate crayons in the same box under a different name. But if you were to open different boxes, you might actually find that the same blue crayon is simultaneously labeled as Liberty Blue, Iron Man Blue, or Birdie Blue, depending on the box that you get. So pencils may seem a little old-fashioned as more kids learn to type and use pens, but don't count them out just yet. According to the Chicago Tribune, they keep coming back into fashion every so often. And when Sudoku first became a craze, pencils actually had a 700% increase in sales in London. Holy cow, wow. All right, well, here's a quick one I didn't realize until our friend Aaron McCarthy did a story on trapper keepers. So apparently the unique folders were called trappers because they kept papers in them so well. And then the binder was called a trapper keeper because it held all the trappers together. You know, I'd always wondered why it had that name. It is such a strange name for a product that I absolutely love. So you gave us the skinny on Elmer's glue at the top of the show. So now I'm actually going to clue you in on Elmer himself because, believe it or not, Elmer wasn't created just for the glue bottle. He was actually based on a real bull that the Borden Company used to advertise its products at the 1939 World's Fair. So the original plan was to have the dairy company's famous spokes cow, Elsie, appear at the event, but she was actually busy shooting the film version of Little Women, or or the sequel, I guess, (laughs) Little Men. (laughs) It's so bizarre. But she was on set, so uh, Borden knew they couldn't show up to the World's Fair empty-handed. So at the last minute, the company found a bull to use instead. And at the fair, the company dubbed him Elmer and announced that he was the unmentioned husband of Elsie, which I'm sure Elsie wasn't too happy about. But (laughs) the public loved the idea, and Elmer was quickly made the mascot for the Borden Chemical Division, you know, the other side of the company. And that's how we wound up on the glue that would eventually bear his name. That was a... uh a much more involved origin story than I expected <laughs> for the for the fact off especially. But I do like the way you brought the episode full circle. So just for that, I think I'm going to give you the trophy. I will take it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's part-time genius. For myself, Mango, Gabe, and Lowell, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode.
Part-Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.